I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 267 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Mark Winborn. He's here to discuss his new book, Jungian Psychoanalysis, A Contemporary Introduction. Mark Winborn is a Jungian psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist. He's a training supervising analyst of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and the C.G. Jung Institute of Zurich. He is the author of Interpretation in Jungian Analysis, Art and Technique and Beyond Persona on Individuation and Beginnings with Jungian Analysts as well as two additional books. You can visit his website, drmarkwinborn.com. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode and at renderingunconscious.org. You may watch this conversation at YouTube by visiting Trapar Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube, or searching for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Or if you prefer, we also have a substack, vanessa23carl.substack.com, where we post exclusive content every week on Mondays and Fridays. As well, if you join our Patreon, you'll always be the first to know about any upcoming Rendering Unconscious episodes, any events we're having, any works in progress. You get behind-the-scenes peeks at music, film, writing, and art. So join us there at Patreon. Your support is so very appreciated. So, Mark, I'm so happy to have you on here, like I just said, um, to talk about this great book, Jungian Psychoanalysis, A Contemporary Introduction. And I thought we could start where you start, basically, in the book with, like, how fantastic this series is in general. Um, It was so nice. I feel like, honestly, this I was, like, wanting to read exactly this book because from the podcast, I get to talk to so many different people with different theoretical orientations. But I'm trained at like a traditional Freudian institute. And then I moved in and like trained with Lacanians or did continued my analytic formation with Lacanians. Um, and like you talk about also, the field is still so divided from Freud and Jung's original split. And it's like Jung is really not integrated into these like Freud and Lacan are integrated and can touch upon other different theories. But Jung is kind of like over here. And I've been talking to different people and a couple of Jungians. And I'm like, I need more Jungians on the podcast and I really want to know what's going on with like contemporary Jungian analytic psychology and so this was like exactly the book that I wanted so thank you for writing it (laughs) great well I have to thank Anir Govreen for that uh, because he contacted me out of the blue he's the series editor uh, and is an Israeli psychoanalyst and so I didn't even know about this series. And he contacted me and said, we'd like you to write one about uh, the Jungian perspective. Uh, but he had a very uh, specific agenda. He said, I don't want you to just resummarize Jung's ideas. I want you to help us see 
where those ideas have gone over the decades and how you utilize them and which ones you utilize more and which ones you utilize less. So Anir really, it's exactly the kind of book I would have wanted to write, but luckily his vision for this series and what he wanted each author to do in the series really felt uh, fit nicely with my agenda. Yeah, it was really wonderful. And it's you really did a wonderful job. And we'll go through the different sections and how you okay. do talk about what the similarities between Jungian analysis and other kinds of analysis and also some differences. Um, mm-hmm. Should we follow kind of the, the trajectory of the book or is there somewhere you'd want to However start in did. particular? No, no particular starting place or wherever you'd like to begin. Well, let's jump right into individuation then, because I feel like this is such an important concept. And I feel like I use it so much without even realizing that I was uh-huh. using it. And I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of people might be able to relate to it or want to integrate that more. And it is kind of a different uh, theoretical, something that Jung gives to psychoanalysis that uh, is really unique. Yeah, it's uh, the whole idea behind individuation for those listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's the idea that uh, the unconscious or the psyche has a direction that it's moving, not just a place that it's been and as a repository of those previous experiences, but that it also has a forward-looking arc or trajectory, and that we're all, in some sense, consciously or unconsciously moving into that arc. And so that's the teleological aspect of Jung's model that I think is more developed in Jung's model than any other model of psychoanalysis. Uh, but I, I think it's there also, particularly in the Bionian perspective, uh, where he has this term, he often uses very simple but ambiguous terms, like he calls it becoming. Uh, and... Thomas Ogden has kind of expanded that phrase into coming into being, which I think dovetails nicely with Jung's idea. And so individuation will be developing the undeveloped aspects of ourselves, not just from a conscious perspective, but from uh, a sense of promptings from our dream life and our fantasy life, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the analytic process, whichever kind of theoretical orientation you have, kind of helps with that process of Mm -hmm. individuation, Mm -hmm. and that it helps you kind of see the patterns that you're reenacting over and over kind of automatically that you did develop, you know, in childhood and growing up. Um, And then you can end up kind of shifting them and becoming being in a way in in the world in a way that's new for you, but maybe more authentic to you or may feel better for you at this time in your life than the way you developed being when you were younger right and i think every analyst or psychoanalytic therapist is doing individuation work often without with their patients without knowing it because when it the way i think of it is our defenses are kind of our anti-individuation force within our own psyche and that you know the defenses are trying to keep us safe and trying to keep us the same Mm -hmm. Defenses do not like change. So the anytime we're engaging uh, defenses and trying to soften, de-rigidify the defenses, we're really doing work that prepares the way for individuation. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like I was doing these kinds of things, but without thinking of it in this way exactly. And it's really nice to kind of read this language and kind of put the theory uh, to what I had already kind of been putting mm -hmm. into practice. Yeah, it's a little bit in Kohut as well when he talks about the arc of achievement. And he's not just talking about um, outward uh, external achievement in life, but that there's an arc of the utilization of our talents and innate capacities that are just there. And our experiences in life then shape how much we're utilizing that uh, tension arc of achievement. Absolutely. Yeah. And I find like with analysis that come in, people often are always often trying to put themselves into kind of categories or ways of being that they imagine they should be like, I should mm -hmm. be doing this. I, I'm procrastinating. That means I'm lazy, like labeling themselves with these things instead of trying to understand why are you procrastinating? Maybe there's a reason. Maybe you don't like what you're trying to do or what, like what you're trying to make yourself do. So it's like learning to like really work with yourself and understand how you work and what you really like desire to be doing mm -hmm. rather than what you imagine you should want to be doing. And then there's those patients who just feel like they should be doing more of anything. You know, I should be doing more yoga. I should be doing more meditation. I should be watching what I eat. I should be drinking less. All of these things that in a sense may be true, but they're not getting at the core of who they are. Yeah, you can do that to yourself forever. Forever, exactly. <laughs> that is limitless. Perfect. <laughs> Exactly. And you talk about, too, how you are already integrating different theories. And right now you consider yourself really like a Jungian Bionian. Do you want to talk a little bit about your kind of journey through training? Sure. Formation or development? Yeah, I was an undergraduate psychology major, but Freud left me very cold. Uh, I, I actually took my introductory Freudian course from a uh, well-known uh, academic Freudian named Bertram Karam, who wrote a kind of a classic text on psychotherapy of schizophrenia. But he was a very dry lecturer, and he just didn't bring anything to life in for me in those ideas. And it wasn't until I got on my clinical PhD internship years later that I heard somebody talking about Jung in a way that seemed interesting and alive. And so I started therapy where I was able to start therapy with that person who wasn't a trained analyst, but had some working knowledge of Jung. And then I moved to New York and got into a Jungian analysis and had a very, uh, I was a psychologist in the army and the chief of my clinic was a graduate of the William Allison White Institute in New York. And so he was very supportive of anything I wanted to do that was psychoanalytically oriented, uh, nice. And then I got exposed to a woman who had been in London for 40 years, a woman named Mel Marshak. And she had trained with the London Society called uh, Society for Analytical Psychology that is very much about this idea of integrating Jungian thought and psychoanalytic thought. And so she was always exposing me to, she was one of my primary supervisor, and she was always exposing me to new ideas in every single session uh, so much that I'm probably still working on the backlog of readings that she suggested. Um, but that was very transformative for me. And one of those 
person she introduced me to was Beyond. And I just think for me, Beyond adds this other layer that integrates easily and well with Jungian thought, but also adds something to Jungian thought that just isn't explicit in the theory. Uh, There's little glimmers of it if you search hard enough, but it's not a central part of it in the way it is for Beyond. Uh, of working with these levels of experience of non-represented states uh, is how they're referred to. He calls them beta elements, but things that have never been formulated as a representation in the psyche. And so it's not like you can repress those things because they they have to be formulated as a representation in order to be, be repressed mm-hmm. or some other defense mechanism. And so he's really talking about taking a a lot of what we would call somatic experience now that's uh, in the body or in our sensory perception or in our affectual field and being able to engage with that in a way that allows it to become represented and then is possible to work with it as psychological experience. And that's just not explicit in Jung's theory. And so it gives me this whole additional level of working particularly with difficult patients who are not traditionally symbolizing patients who can't immediately jump into dream work and derive something helpful from it because they they have trouble making the shift into the symbolic world where some a car in a dream can be more than just a car. Absolutely. Yeah, that's something I feel like is really lacking in Lacanian theory as oh. well. It's like there's no place for this kind of unsymbolizable, unsymbolized realm. It's like all okay. language and it's symbolized, you know. I mean, he has yeah, the real, a- but it doesn't like you can't touch the real. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think I, I think I may have even mentioned it in the book, but the, the whole Lacanian thing is one thing that I haven't gone very deeply into simply because the learning curve, it's such a different language, it's a different culture. How Lacanians write about cases is very different than uh, how we think of case presentations, uh, all of those things. And I just haven't had the time to do the deep dive that I think it's like learning a new foreign language. Yeah, you have to really commit for a period of time maybe like maybe like five years at least and then you can be like okay i get i get the gist of this (laughs) so i've given myself a pretty broad exposure to object relations and intersubjectivity and beyond and kohat um and uh yeah the lacanian thing is something that's going to have to wait until uh i'm less busy you're good Um, but it's also interesting to talk about like Jung's idea about the analytic relationship, because that is kind of in the relational field, like there are parts of Jung that the relational field kind of picks up or or that they, mm-hmm. you know, work together really well as well. Yeah, he talks about it all in more symbolic language, and he relies on um, the proto-scientific field of alchemy to describe a lot of the analytic relationship. And so he talks, uh, he uses the metaphorical language of alchemy to describe the analytic relationship and the uh, thinking of the uh, analytic 
consulting room is like the analytic, the alchemical vessel in which the the chemical reaction is taking place between two elements. You know, and often that's symbolized like in alchemy as a king figure and a queen figure, or Saul, the sun, and Luna, the moon, as a masculine and feminine figures, and that there's an interaction between those. And so he uses he almost always speaks about things like the analytic relationship from a metaphorical position. Yeah, it's super interesting. And that also brings us to the training and the union training and all the different elements that you get mm -hmm. when you study this way that you don't get in other analytic institutes. Right. So we spend a lot of time in our training being exposed to uh, alchemical readings uh, and to religious um, patterns, to myths and fairy tales. And so I would say um, in some programs, it's as much as 70% of the time is spent discussing those elements. And in comparison to other programs, relatively less time spent focusing on clinical technique, uh, you know, the process of analysis itself, it has strengths and weaknesses in that respect, in that I do think that all of that immersion in these metaphorical fields does train your mind, train the analyst's mind to think metaphorically, which has a carryover into working with fantasy working with dreams in particular, because dreams are speaking in metaphor. And then also in terms of being able to spot kind of the, un, the unconscious meaning of ordinary speech and to hear some of these metaphors creep into their language, into their description of day-to-day -day life, uh, that sometimes uh, it's easier to see when they're talking about uh, being upset about having to spend $700 on a car repair that they may also be talking about something else. So it really like analysis. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> analysis uh, or needing an engine overhaul and what that means. Uh, but it really trains our ear uh, to listen for those metaphorical themes in the patient's speech. And so that's a real asset. Uh, it doesn't, the training often is under emphasizing how to utilize the, all of that information of how to present it to the patient in a way that's digestible to the patient and not overwhelming to the patient. So that's something you really had to learn like through clinical practice? Yeah, yeah. And so there there are ways naturally to teach that and uh, there, there's just kind of a uh, more of an emphasis traditionally in the union world on the analyst using their feeling and intuition to guide themselves through an analytic process, as opposed to these these are good ways of doing it and these are not such good ways of doing it, uh, and where in a tr uh, other psychoanalytic programs you might have three or four years of analytic focus, a seminar on analytic technique over three or four years. Mm -hmm. 
and you know that might cover defenses and interpretation analysis of the resistance uh, establishing the analytic frame all of those things are touched upon but they're not given the same emphasis uh, as the myths fairy tales religions um, and alchemical motifs Mm, it would be great to have both because we had a lot of these techniques like so i think psychoanalytic technique four four different classes um over the years but we didn't get any myths or fairy tales or, or religion and i think that i feel i say all the time like i think you learn so much about human psychology from these kinds of things like mythology fairy tales and mm-hmm. religious like and especially like polytheistic religion when you have all the different gods and like all the different ways of being it's like right. this is different states of a human you know what i mean mm-hmm. um it's so it's so rich in that way yeah there's a Jungian. uh he's deceased now but james hillman who was one of kind of establishing one of the uh, main lines of Jungian thought that's referred to as archetypal psychology and that's what he a uh, specific idea that he promotes is that um that psyche is much more like a polytheistic religion you mm-hmm. know that there's multiple centers of activity multiple uh forces influencing us and that there's not one overarching organizing principle that's shaping all of that for jung that would be what he calls the self um, that there is kind of a deep guidance from inside that's shaping and organizing the overall personality and hillman says no that's not the case it's polytheistic and we need to understand what the poly polytheistic atmosphere of our own psyche is that's interesting so yeah maybe you could talk about that you said there's like a developmental track kind of of union psychology and then this archetypal that have developed yeah. over time so there was a guy there he's um his name is andrew samuels he's in the uk and in, in around 85 he wrote a book called jung and the post jungians and he kind of developed this schemata for describing how Jungian thought has developed and so we refer to classical Jungian as people uh, as the line from Jung's collected works and those who continued to stay close to his original ideas, like a woman named Maria Luisa von Franz, for example, is kind of seen as the torchbearer after Jung died of continuing that line of thought. In the late 40s, early 50s, there was a analyst in the UK in London named Michael Fordham. And he was a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. And he felt that he wasn't, he didn't receive adequate training from the Jungian perspective in how to do child analysis. And he had real strong reservations about the existing works around working from a Jungian perspective with children. And so he started reading Melanie Klein and was just blown away by her insights into the child psyche. And so he's the first, what we call the first post-Jungian. And originally that was referred to as the London School versus the Zurich School, which is where Jung uh, was from, was from Zurich, Switzerland. And so it was this tension between London, who was, which was more interested in 
combining psychoanalytic ideas and having um, a different understanding of infancy and early childhood than classical Jungians did. And so that became what's known now as the developmental school, where we think of having a that individuation itself is a lifelong process beginning in utero and continuing throughout life and different stages of that individuation process where it's taken up more consciously, perhaps later in life, but individuations occurring uh, from the time of birth. And so that became, now there's, it's incorporated ideas from object relations and self-psychology and other schools of thought, and but that's now referred to as the developmental school. And then in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, James Hillman came along and became very prominent with this archetypal school of Jungian psychology, and that became the second uh, post-Jungian development. And he's very focused um, on this polytheistic view of psyche and about what he calls he doesn't refer much to analysis per se. He talks about analysis as soul making uh, and that when we're engaging with our dream imagery, we're really engaging with what he calls soul. But he doesn't really define in a, uh, the, a theology sense what soul is. He wants to uh, allow that to remain non-defined. He's not speaking about soul in the way we would speak about soul and, for example, Christianity. And now there's a fourth, what I call the fourth wave, which is a guy named Wolfgang Giegrich, who's a German analyst. And he has this very rigorous and broad cultural understanding. Uh, and he, initially, his main position was to critique Jung's ideas and to highlight what he thought as, in a sense, Jung's uh, logical errors. Uh, and but that the and he's trying to uh, develop this idea of that the that the soul itself has its own logic, uh, and that the soul's logic doesn't really care about our. Uh, ordinary waking logical ideas about what we think things should be. So it's, it's a very intellectually rigorous process and I'm, I welcome it because often uh, some of these ideas get pulled along and just passed along without much reflection on, are these concepts still valid? Uh, are there areas in which we have questions about this? And Giegrich's really quite good about challenging traditional Jungian perspectives when he feels that um, there was something Jung was overlooking or that something Jung wasn't aware of. Uh, and then it's expanded into its own kind of whole prop way of doing analysis that's different, but it's not a methodology. It's more of a way of thinking about what's happening in the consulting room. Super interesting. And the the you also talk about the archetypes, of course, in the collective unconscious and how this is something that's really different, like than other forms of psych mm -hmm. psychoanalysis or analytic psychology. And um how much do you use them like when you're in clinical work or is it something that you just have in mind kind of metaphorically or how does that come into play? 
Yeah. So Jung's idea is that there's a personal unconscious that's kind of a repository of all of our uh, experiences that we've had throughout life. And that there's what he calls the collective unconscious, which is transpersonal. It's not just contained in one person. It's kind of the repository of experiences for humankind. And that it's built up, it's built up over the millennia. And that these are templates that shape us. They're not specific forms, but they're tendencies to perceive and experience and act in certain ways. So some people may be familiar with uh, Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero's Journey. And so what he's really unpacking in that whole book, or the hero of a thousand faces, I'm sorry. Uh, in that book, he's unpacking what Jung calls the hero's journey. This idea that every culture has heroic figures that take on certain tasks in life, have a certain trajectory in, in the stories about these heroes that's similar across cultures. Often they have to, there's a specific task they're challenged with that's transformative for them. They have to go on some kind of journey. And in this process of transformation, then they come back to their original village or their original town and they bring back this new knowledge and this new energy that they've been exposed to. Uh, often there's it's overcoming something like slaying the Gorgon Medusa, for example, uh, or Hercules. The Twelve Labors of Hercules is a heroic uh, story that fits into the hero's uh, journey. So all if you think about... Uh, you know, in clay sculpture, there's a wire wire armature that's at underneath the clay that's being um, molded around the wire armature. And so one of the ways to think about that is that you can have a bull, you can recognize the bull-like qualities in the wire armature. But then on top of that, you could have a thousand different representations of a bull, but there's something bullness about all of those things, even though they look wildly different. And so Jung would say that's the archetypal influence. It's shaping things. It's not a specific image, but it's an influence, a template or a pattern that we're processing our experience through. So I do think about those things. I don't think about them so much as coming from a collective unconscious that's some kind of repository of things. I think about these as universals of human experience, uh, that as human beings, we have a tendency to process and experience things in a particular way, just like we're, our physiology determines what, what amount of the light spectrum we can detect because of our physiology we have certain frequencies of tone that we can detect there's some smells that we can't smell that dogs can smell all of these different kind of things uh, you could say are templates for experience that then shape how we process the world you know even if there's a word for example there's been studies of um what happens to a culture that doesn't have 
a word for the color blue. You know, there's been some interesting uh, sociological and neuropsych research on how that changes one's worldview. So all of these things I think of as archetypal elements and what it tends to do in analysis is it, I'll introduce somebody will be speaking and it'll make me think of a myth or a fairy tale and, or a movie or a book or a poem or a song. And I'll find some way to introduce the idea of that other element. So, and what it does is it broadens out the patient's perspective and they can see kind of a universality of, oh, the same thing I'm talking about now is from this story that's 5,000 years old or 500 years old. There's a group called Theater of War that's doing kind of the same thing. It's a drama group. And what they do is they take ancient Greek tragedies and they bring together some actors and they do a dramatic reading, not in costume, but of this ancient Greek play, for example, at military bases. And it has a profound effect on people when they're when they're reading about the effects of war on these communities that are being told about in these ancient Greek tragedies. And they're seeing, oh my gosh, the technology has changed, but the feelings remain the same. And so they're they don't use this language, but they're using that same idea that we take comfort in knowing that there's a universality to these experiences and that we share the same experiences, uh, not just with contemporaries, but with people that lived thousands of years ago. And in some way, it doesn't alleviate all of the feeling, but they don't feel quite as alone in the feeling when you make those connections. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm not, the, I'm not alone in this experience. So the people have had this. It makes you feel, yeah, right. it helps a lot. Like, well, that's why sometimes people like diagnoses because it makes mm -hmm. you, oh, there's a word for that. What I'm going through, and a whole bunch of other people have gone through it as well. Yeah, I mean, I can't say the number of times somebody's come in and said, "I think I'm going crazy," you know, and I'll say, "Well, tell me about that," uh, and. You know, they'll describe their symptoms and I'll say, well, there's a there's a diagnosis for that. It's called obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, and you, I so many times their mouths drop open and they say, this is a thing. I'm not crazy. And I'll say, I'm sure it feels like it feels crazy to you. But yes, it's a thing. And here's what's happening. And it allows me to go into a little bit of description about the diagnosis that helps them feel like, oh my gosh, there, there's an approach to this. I might not be destined to feel this way my whole life. Yeah. And I especially love the example you gave with soldiers going to military bases. Cause I remember reading about this. It might've been the same group once mm -hmm. before and how they talked about in the article, how like in ancient Greece, a lot of the people doing the acting were actually military. A lot of the people that were in the audience were military. And this is a way mm -hmm. also that they like just explain the experience of what the war was like to the people who hadn't been there. And also a way to explain what they'd been 
been going through for the people who had also been through it. So it was like really like a communal kind of processing experience. It wasn't just like a play for like entertainment. Exactly. Yeah, it was a, a way of processing the emotions of the community. And that, that particular group, Theater of War, has expanded their program now. And they're also doing the same thing with programs around race and programs around uh, gender. And I think there's one other area that they're focused on. Uh, but they're, but it's, it's the same template. They find this, uh, you know, they find something from the past that, parallels something that's still that's occurring now that's wonderful and that also makes me think of Jung's um, technique of active imagination and like acting these things out and acting them in this like kind of ritualistic way really like helps process right it keeps us in relationship to it and the um the, the whole idea of carrying it forward. And so this whole active imagination process is really about helping the patient see that they can deepen their experience and that in some ways what's happening inside is just as real as the books sitting on your shelf. Uh, and that, that he calls that psychic reality, uh, that we should take the things that are happening within just as seriously and give them as much weight as the things that surround us in the physical world. And, you know, with all of the developments in quantum physics that we know there is this other level of experience that we may not be able to process, be aware of consciously. Uh, but there's a whole another level of experience that, you know, is now empirically demonstrated you know even something simple like the higgs boson not simple uh but something specific like the higgs boson of they did you know they had this idea about the higgs boson particle like 80 years ago or not quite 80 years ago it was written about it i think in the early 60s and, but they didn't have the technology to investigate it and they still don't have the technology to see a higgs boson but they can see the, uh, the accumulation of energy if they put a screen in a particle collider accelerator and they can see, they can predict theoretically if the Higgs boson exists, we should see an accumulation of energy here. And so what they see is not the Higgs boson, but the accumulation of energy verifies the theory. And in some ways, that's kind of like what we're doing in analysis. All of the time, we're engaging with unseen things, but things that are felt. We call them, in the Jungian world, we call some of the interior psychological structure complexes. The object relations world calls them internal object relations. But we're really talking about something that's very similar about how psyche is structured, but you can't see it directly. You can't put it under a microscope, but you can see these shaping influences as they appear in dreams and as patients um, act and feel and perceive in certain predictable ways, you can see the shaping influence of these interior structures 
that are concepts that we can't prove, and, but the concepts are just shorthand for ways of interacting uh, with psychological processes that we need names for. Absolutely. Maybe you could say a little bit about Jung's theory of like the complexes and then you talk also about like defenses and pathology. Right. So Jung's idea that is that there's an overarching self that is both personal, that it shapes our person, our individual personality, but it's also transpersonal that it's part of the collective unconscious and that it in some ways is um, by transpersonal, I'm, that there's a force that we're all connected to uh, that also is shaping us and in moving us in a particular direction. Some people would even say guiding us. I don't think of it so much as guidance, like there's a, individual personality with quite specific intents for each of us as an individual. But I think that it's like there's um, canalization of, you know, riverbeds, dry riverbeds coming together. And then when they merge, uh, the riverbed shapes the water along particular paths. And I think of that as more like the activity of the self. And then the self is um, we're constantly in a sense doing a test evaluation and we're noticing what happens even before we have language and that these patterns of experience become internalized experience with outer others our mother our father our siblings, our, the authority figures in our lives, our teachers, for example, and that we do internalize them to a certain extent, and those become our complexes. But our complexes from Jung's theory aren't just these individual experiences that are stored as figures internally, like the we would talk about a mother complex, which is partially a representation of our mother, but it's not an exact representation of our mother because we have our own temperament and we internalize certain elements of that mother and we alter certain elements of that mother as we're internalized. And then Jung would add the additional element that we all have what he would say is a mother archetype. We have certain anticipatory expectations that are universal of all mothers. And so he would say that at the core of the mother complex is the mother archetype. And that there are certain archetypes or certain complexes that we all have. He refers to the ego as a complex. So ego is the center of our conscious identity. And that he also says we all have a shadow. And the shadow complex is the part of ourselves that we disown, that we don't like to see, that we're uncomfortable with, the parts of ourselves that are undeveloped, and to a certain extent, the parts of ourselves that we believe our surrounding culture isn't going to approve of or embrace. So all of that would be part of the shadow complex. 
and that everybody would have some kind of shadow complex, but the contents of that complex are going to be different for each person because of the differential reinforcement they get from their environments. He would say that we also have what he calls the persona complex, which is the, the part of ourselves that we kind of shape and mold and present to the world. Like you and I have a certain idea about what a psychoanalyst uh, kind of fits into. And so we're probably not going to wear uh, a T-shirt that is dirty and has a lot of holes in it into our clinical practice because that doesn't really fit the persona of psychoanalysts and it's not going to give our patients very much confidence in us most likely. So we all have personas, whether it's psychoanalysts, whether it's being a mother, being a father, being um, a member of a church and that the persona varies. So he calls these things functional complexes that everybody has and that uh, everybody needs and relies on to some extent, but they all need to be examined in the process of analysis, either explicitly or implicitly. And then there's other complexes that are more idiosyncratic. So he would say some people have a money complex and other people don't. Some people are, you know, that grew up in the Great Depression, uh, you know, or our children of people who grew up in the Great Depression have an anxiety about insufficiency, about money going away. And so they may be much more frugal. And so Jung would say that that's um, a complex is simply a pattern that has a particular set of emotions associated with it and that it has certain patterns of behavior associated with it and a libidinal charge or a psychic energy charge associated with it. And when that complex becomes activated by circumstances, it kind of displaces the ego to a certain degree. It kind of takes, it kicks the ego off of the center stage and out of the spotlight and kind of steps into the spotlight and shapes our feelings, reactions, and behaviors uh, that are in a way that's more consistent with the agenda of that particular complex. Makes sense. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, good. I like that. Um, and I wanted to ask too, because we do have to talk about Jung had his own kind of hero's journey, which I really like love about him. And maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the split between Freud and Jung. And it had such a big impact. So I don't know if everybody puts together that Jung went into this like really dark phase. And then mm -hmm. that's where he like made the black books and the red book. And then mm -hmm. how the red book wasn't released until pretty recently, like 2009, you know, he, he didn't want to yeah. release right away. And, and yeah, all of that is like huge. And I feel like we're really to understand people's theories, different theories. It's really helpful to understand more about the person, you know? Yeah. So Jung was a young, young psychiatrist working at a hospital, a psychiatric hospital in Zurich called the Berkholtzli. And he was, um, he was doing some research with something called the word association test. And there were many forms of it already before Jung and Jung was doing some experiments with it using 
basically the word association test is you give the subject a word and you ask them to respond immediately to the first thing that comes into their mind to that word. And you go through this list of a hundred words and then you ask them to retell you, you give them the word again and you ask them, what was the word that you told me the first time? And so it's kind of like a test retest. And what he noticed in doing this research that there were these, the errors, uh, what he called complex indicators, there were patterns to these errors and that you could see them kind of grouping around specific themes. And that's where he came up with the original idea for complexes. Hmm. And he sent, he had read Freud's work. Uh, he initially was kind of, he, he said, I, I, the first time I read uh, Interpretation of Dreams, which came out in 1899 uh, originally, and then was published in English in 1900. Um, he, the first time he read it, he said, I couldn't make any sense of it. Um, but then I read it again, and he said, I started to see the parallel that some of the research I was doing actually supported Freud's ideas. And so he sent... He started corresponding with Freud in 1903, I believe, and they met for the first time in 1904. And the first time they met, they sat continuously without a break, talking for eight hours. So there's a great deal of energy. Freud's older enough that he's kind of a father figure. He becomes a father figure to Jung. Jung had a complicated uh, relationship with his father. And... Jung kind of became Freud's gifted son, uh, and there was a tremendous energy. And Jung was, Freud was afraid of psychoanalysis, was already being referred to as the Jewish science. And he thought it was, this is not a psychology of uh, for Jews, this is a psychology for everyone. And he was concerned that if his group of close collaborators remained only Jews, that it would be relegated to, it wouldn't ever uh, gain traction within the broader psychological community. And so he was delighted to have this brilliant young psychiatrist who actually had a, a larger reputation at that time, or the, the group at Berkholtz that Lee did, I would say, uh, than Freud did. And so this was a wonderful compliment for Freud to his agenda of spreading uh, information about psychoanalysis. And Jung was a great spokesman for it. And he quickly became the uh, president of the International Psychoanalytic Association, was the editor of the first psychoanalytic journal. But then in 1912, uh, it didn't start in 1912, but he started to feel some restrictions uh, from Freud's theoretical position that Freud held very dogmatically, and he was very insistent on not deviating from the central tenets. And some of Jung's independent ideas did deviate from that. And he published a book uh, in 1912 called that became called Symbols of Transformation. 
And he knew when he published that, that that was going to create a rift. And so it did. And within a year after its publication, uh, he was being harassed quite a lot at the psychoanalytic meetings for these new ideas. And he saw the handwriting on the wall and he resigned from his presidency and resigned from the psychoanalytic yearbook, which was the first psychoanalytic journal. And this is when he entered his dark phase because he had lost this intense, mutually idealizing relationship uh, that and he had lost his professional standing within that community, and he was now seen as a pariah. And he went into this dark phase from about 1913 to 1919, where he withdrew from a lot of activity, continued his clinical practice, uh, and continued to write, but it was a very dark time for him, uh, but also ultimately a creative time for him. And he came out of that period and entered one of his most prolific periods uh, in which he, and he really stayed in dialogue with Freud, not directly, uh, but throughout the rest of his career, you can see him in his works making these comparisons with his perspective and Freud's perspective. But he also says, uh, even late in his life, he said in his autobiography, uh, sometimes I can be heard in a session speaking as a Freudian, and sometimes I can be heard speaking as an Adlerian, and often I'm just speaking as me, Jung. Uh, so he never lost respect for Freud, but he didn't, he felt constrained in expressing his ideas within the dogmatic way that Freud held uh, the ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like um, that's, I mean, it's natural, like you have a master or master student relationship. And at some point, the student needs to develop their own ideas. You can't just constantly regurgitate, regurgitate what somebody else has said, you know, so it's a perfectly natural thing to have happen. And I feel like it's such a shame with all the different psychoanalytic institutes, like you've seen, like you talk about in the book, there's splits off of different union institutes and every in New York, there's like 50 different psychoanalytic institutes and they've all split off of each other. You know what right, I mean? Right. And it's like, I guess it's just what people do, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't all talk and share ideas because all of these different uh, theories have interesting nuggets. You know, even if you don't like the whole theory, take what you like out of it. And if it's, it's such a shame that uh, kind of Freud did that to Jung and that it's kind of stayed that way in the field, you know? Yeah, and uh, there wasn't as much of a uh, affective disruption uh, in, for example, Mel Wilfred Bion was Melanie Klein's most brilliant student at one point. Uh, and they didn't have a falling out in the way Freud and Jung did, but Bion came to a place where he stopped writing, stopped referring directly to the the central Kleinian ideas because he needed to develop his own ideas. Uh, I think the shift that we're at now that I'm hopeful about is number one, psychoanalysis is not, is no longer the pinnacle of mental health treatment in the world in the way it once was. It doesn't have the prominence that it did up through the 1960s. 
And what led to a lot of splits, I think, is the idea that we had truth. You know, and we don't really have, now we understand that we don't have truth. Uh, what we have is a lens, or as Susan Levine talks about in her book, Useful Servants, she said, theories are not truths. They're just servants. They're either useful or they're not useful. And so that allows us, I think, if, if more of us take up that idea, that it allows us to have these polytheoretical, cross-theoretical, cross-disciplinary dialogues because we're no longer speaking about who's got the right version of what's happening and like you said that we're going to uh we're going to find a theory that fits a patient even if it's not in our particular dominant theory that we hold and that that's really why it's to me why it's useful it's not just interesting it's that Sometimes I need a cohesion theory for a particular patient. Sometimes I need a Bionian way of working with a particular patient. And sometimes Klein's emphasis on envy and greed and aggression is exactly what the perspective that I need to focus and see a patient's experiences through because it gives shape and gives a way of interacting with them with an idea that all of this stuff has meaning, but we may need multiple lenses to discern the meaning in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Was there anything that you wanted to get to that we didn't get to get to in this hour? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, For everything else, they need to get the book. That's right. That's right. Union Psychoanalysis, a contemporary introduction. And I saw you have so many other books that sound really interesting too. So I would love to have you back sometime to okay. talk about some of these other books or anything you do in the future. Of course, you're always welcome. Just let me know when something new is coming out. But I I'm going to order some of these other books too, especially okay. the one on individuation. They, they all sound super interesting. Um, yeah. Love yeah, it. Love what you're doing. Most most closest to my heart is the book on uh, uh, interpretation in Jungian analysis. Uh, and so that one, I think, really captured well the way I work and the way I think about things clinically. And the Jungian psychoanalysis, in some ways, an extension of that, but it's a much broader view, uh, covering a lot wider territory, even though it's a much shorter book. Interesting. Well, let's do the interpretation one next. Okay, great. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I appreciate the time. It was a fun conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Mark Winborn. Be sure to buy his new book and check out his website, drmarkwinborn.com. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music to Rendering Unconscious Podcast. You can follow him on social media at carl.abrahamson on Instagram and visit his main website at carlabrahamson.com. And now the song, 
in the void of the psychic womb from the album conceive ourselves a collaboration i did with sonic mastermind pete murphy available at petemurphy.bandcamp.com or highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com as well as on spotify and other streaming services just search for Vanessa Sinclair and Pete Murphy. Enjoy. Genesis Briar, Pure Ridge. Rewrite the future. Well, we're back where it all began in the void of the psychic womb. Lady J, Carl Abrahamson, Peter Beard, the brilliant. Abrahamson, Lady J, Genesis, Briar, Purity, Immaculate Conception, Carl Abrahamson. Attendants are at Mega Golem eager to disseminate the psyche of us all as we finally fade away. And the people who tried to listen simply couldn't hear. 